Welcome to the Rodolfo Rivers Project. It is a podcast where my father has had a lot of good conversations all around the world. He makes podcasts and movies and a lot of other stuff. J'espère que vous allez l'aimer. I mean, for me, it was a beautiful experience because both as a student, I thought that the process of a moot court is unparalleled in terms of your legal education. And I confirmed that when I was a coach because you have the opportunity to spend so much time with a group of people. Of course, the time commitment on both sides depends on the individual. So my contract was for uh, three hours a week and we ended up working 12 hours a week. That was Miguel Antonio Villamizar Parra. I am Rodolfo Rivas and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. Miguel is a counselor of legal affairs at the WTO. Continuing with our second season, I had the pleasure of hosting Miguel, who is likely among one of the most well-liked individuals in international trade. When you meet him, you will know what I'm talking about, and after listening to this conversation, you will likely agree with me. I didn't know this, but Miguel has been listening to the podcast for some time, so having him as a guest was a pleasure. I have wanted to invite him for a while, and I am glad I finally did. I was happy to stroll down memory lane and listen to Miguel's journey. We covered how he got interested in international economic law after briefly flirting with marine biology. There is also much more he talks about, including the formative experience coaching the Wonderkind team at the John Jackson Moot Court and how he got to the WTO. It was a great episode, but don't take my word for it. Listen for yourself. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram, X, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help to spread the word by recommending us to your friends, enemies, or frenemies. A small act like liking, and subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in the conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Musical theme by Hugo Torres. As I was telling you, the Colombian representation in the podcast is the largest by far. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for the invitation, Rodolfo. It's an honor being here with so many big names that have passed through your microphones. And, and you as well. Oh, thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you were also telling me that you actually listen to the podcast. Not yes. many of my guests do, so I am I'm happy that you No, <laughs> that you... no, I've actually heard it, I think, for like a year and a half now. I sort of started listening to it because... A common friend of ours recommended it, uh, Mauricio Salcedo. Ah, uh, so he was one of my first guests. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so yeah, I've heard it since, and, and you have great episodes, great interviews. So, so it's always a pleasure to hear it. Thank you very much. I, I mean, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start from the beginning. Like, uh, where are you from? So I'm from Bogota, Colombia. Ah, you're from Bogota. Yeah. I think most of my guests from Colombia are not from Bogota. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, perhaps some of them are, others yeah, are from other parts. But yeah, I was born in and, the capital. <laughs> and how was uh, that growing up? Uh, I mean, it was sort of a very interesting and intense experience at the time. I was born in 1982, so I grew up there through all of the 80s, sort of like the later part of the 80s being conscious, <laughs> and the 90s. And I was in Colombia up until 20. 
11. So the first decade of the 2000s, I was also there. And as you may know, well, the history was quite violent uh, during those years. And violence sort of shifted from different sort of areas. So first it was the whole threats of the drug dealers and the war that Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel, together with other cartels, uh, unleashed against the government. And that sort of led up to perhaps the bloodiest year in the history of Colombia, which was 1989, when three presidential candidates were assassinated. There was basically a car bomb exploding every other week in different parts of the country. Earlier this year I was visiting and I went to um, a park, which is now, that used to be the building where Pablo Escobar lived in Medellin. And they demolished it like six years ago and as part of the sort of uh, peace process and transitional justice. Uh, what they've done there is build a beautiful park that has sort of a um, sculpture. It's not exactly a sculpture, but it's similar to um, the one that's in D.C. for the people who died uh, during the Vietnam War, which is yeah. like a black stone and has names engraved on it. So this one on one side has holes where you can put flowers. So that's very nice when you go there and there's like uh, yellow flowers. It's quite beautiful. And on the other side, it has a chronology of all the uh, car bombs that exploded in Colombia starting in 1983 and going up to 1993, more or less, so like a decade of them. And let's say that 70% of the dates that are inscripted happened in 1989, which is just mind-blowing in terms of the violence that... Sort you, of and you were year. seven years old. Yeah, exactly. But you said that you were conscious? Like, how, how conscious? How did you experience this? I mean, for me, it was tough because uh, my dad, he's a doctor and uh, he used to work downtown in the city. And around that time, there was a big bomb that exploded in the building of the, um, uh, it was called DAS, Departamento Administrativo de Seguridad, which would be sort of like the intelligence service mm -hmm. of the time, uh, ascribed to the police. And this was a massive bomb. So his, the clinic where he worked was like, let's say, 20 blocks away. And the size of the explosion shattered the glass of all the building at the hospital. So these were the type of stories that we were listening at home when we would speak to, to him. Another time, my mom, this was a, a few years after, uh, was working near a place where another bomb exploded. And, and it was sort of part of daily life there. We would go out to school and then there was all of the rush of not knowing if something would happen to someone going back home. Uh, because these bombs could explode, so it was intense. I, I, I mean, uh, I'm from Mexico, so uh, we share some similarities in terms of of the violence, specifically from drug cartels. And I get tired that everyone who I talk to who's not from Mexico, they immediately associate Mexico to to that, which I imagine is something similar that happens to you, and you just get tired of talking about it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think it has shifted a little bit. Uh, perhaps 15 years ago, anywhere I went, it was like, oh, Colombia, cocaine, etc. Recently, with the release of Narcos, there was sort of another wave of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But thankfully... And actually, one episode, like, I mean, like a whole season was dedicated to Colombia, and there was a season also dedicated to what happened in Guadalajara, like yeah. in my city. Yeah, <laughs> which is crazy. But luckily, I think that Colombia has produced many other good things and they have sort of started to be acknowledged. I mean, even from before, but I guess they were less visible. So Garcia Marquez, our 
a Nobel laureate was sort of like very important, but perhaps not as known uh, in mass media, sort of like everyone knowing him, of him. But then we got Shakira, who everyone knows. Yeah. Oh, Gar Garcia Marquez, I know him. But he also lived a long period of time in Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. He lived in Spain and in Mexico. Yeah. And actually, he died in Mexico. Yeah. Uh, he's one of my favorite writers. He's amazing. And partly because he was exiled by the political violence at the time. Because the other sort of wave of violence that came a bit later, but was present since the 60s, was that associated with the left-wing guerrillas. Yeah. And it was sort of very intense in the 2000s, the beginning of the 2000s and sort of mid-90s, uh, because that's when the paramilitarism appeared. And it was this very strong fight between three very powerful forces, which were the guerrillas that were financed by the drug business, uh, the paramilitaries, which were also financed by the drug business, and the Colombian army and sort of police forces who were, well, financed by the Colombian budget, but uh, it was a very intense uh, fight. So do, do you think that all of this uh, happening had an influence in you deciding to pursue law? I think it did. When I was in the last years of high school, uh, with a group of friends, we created a movement that was called Somos Colombia. Unfortunately, years after, not many years after, uh, there was a political movement associated with the paramilitaries who took a similar name, which was unfortunate. <laughs> but we were basically uh, high school kids in the midst of the peace process between the government and the guerrillas, uh, which was at the time when Andres Pastrana was president. And he basically gave the guerrilla an area about the size of Switzerland for them to sort of operate without any presence of the government or the state. And that led to the guerrilla sort of getting a lot of strength. And at the time there was this effort to involve civil society and schools and there were sort of initiatives of uh, people in, well, uh, students in schools uh, sending suggestions on how we could improve the future of Colombia and that kind of thing. So in that context, some friends uh, and I decided to create this group with students of other uh, schools in the city. And we would meet like uh, once a week on Saturdays and sort of discuss about ideas and politics. And that really drove me into thinking that there was a need for social change and that one of the means to achieve that was through law. And uh, your father being a, a doctor, like he was like, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because when I was a kid, uh, my initial passion was paleontology. So okay. when I was like six years old, I was drawn to dinosaurs in a very meaningful way. It's funny because people used to tell me, oh, was that a result of Jurassic Park? And I'm like, well, no, because it was actually before Jurassic Park when I was sort of uh, interested in dinosaurs. Jurassic Park was a thrill because it's like, wow, look at them coming alive. Uh, it came like around like, uh, like the perfect age for you. Yeah. You must have been like, what, 10? More or less. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then I read uh, the novels on which it was inspired Michael by Crichton. Michael Crichton. So, yeah. so those were also great. Uh, but then what took me away from paleontology was an uncle. He was a lawyer who at the time was working as the president of a university in Colombia. And he tells me, do you know how many universities in the world have paleontology as an undergraduate degree? Not many, I And imagine. I was like, no, I have no idea. Well, there's actually five. And do you know how many of those, well, at that time, uh, are located in the American continent? <laughs> and it was like, uh, no, I don't know. Well, there's three of them. <laughs> so it's like, mm, do you really want to study that? <laughs> 
So he made a compelling case of perhaps <laughs> not being uh, the best career to pursue. And then... Was, was, he, was his intention to bring you to law? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, it might have been, but not, not necessarily. I mean, he certainly thought that it would be better for me to study something more mainstream that would allow me to f secure sort of a job. And I think that was sort of his intention behind uh, his advice. And then I was for about five years uh, very much into marine biology. Whoa. So I had a fish tank that my uh, dad sort of encouraged me to have and my mom very kindly financed because uh, the energy costs yeah. of keeping a 90 gallon sort of tank uh, warm at the temperature that you require for life to survive sort of in the ambience of a coral reef. Uh, at 2,600 meters above sea level in Bogota, it can be quite high. Yeah, actually, I had one, and it's so much work. Yeah, like it's. Uh, I mean, it looks nice, but you don't know all the work that goes behind. Yeah, and I loved it. I mean, I started uh, reading books of how to keep them properly, try to understand what's the behavior of some of the species and which ones live well with the others. And for some reason, I was very much drawn to sort of predators and poisonous <laughs> fish. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I had three moray eels, uh, like five lionfish in the tank, some, uh, there was a rockfish, a number of anemones. Uh, so yeah, it was like a very beautiful, but at the same time dangerous place, which sort of had a thrill to it because <laughs> some of these animals uh, ate live animals. So yeah. I had another tank with live fish to feed them. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was... <laughs> That was uh, interesting. But that was like a hobby. That was you yeah, never I mean, it, I, I really seriously of? contemplated it when I was in the last year of high school because we had um, sort of like vocational counselors. And at the time, sort of I thought, I'm really sort of keen on doing this. And I even looked into going to Brisbane in Australia yeah. to be close to the Great Barrier Reef. But then one day I was sort of like envisaging the future, sort of seeing what it could look like. And there was an uncle who used to be a marine biologist. Uh, he then moved to the States and went sort of into management. And there was this picture of him um, sitting in the middle of the ocean with the skin very dry, the hair very sort of yellow from the sun. And I was thinking, I really want that for my life. <laughs> Probably a marine biologist would say, well, that's not really the life that you'll have. You'll be in a lab, you'll be researching, you'll be doing other things. But at the time, that was sort of like, hmm, perhaps I don't want to be... Sort of like Tom Hanks <laughs> <laughs> in Castaway. In Castaway, exactly. But uh, well, that's very practical of you, like to to think of of it that way. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why, but many times I've sort of thought when you are driven into doing some line of work, you need to really think of what it is that you're doing on a daily basis, because you can romanticize a lot, a number of things. But then if you're not happy on the day to day it can be extremely challenging and taxing on you emotionally and professionally. Because yeah. if you're not motivated sort of to get out of bed and eager to go to work and say, okay, let's take it another day and bring the best of myself to this, you, you, you may end up finding that, oh, perhaps I'm not in the right place. That sounds like a very wise advice. And it is surprising that at such early age, you were aware of it. Yeah, that, <laughs> I, I think I have never really thought of it, but Probably there were the influence of a sort of family members that came across at different times. So one of the largest influences in my life is my mom's dad. Uh, he passed away some years ago, 
but he lived to be 100, and when I was born, he was uh, 81 years old. And when we were kids with my sister, he would sit us on his lap and take out a book of quotes and sort of read something out, let's say, about friendship. Yeah. And he would say, okay, what do you think about this? So that sort of started to make us think about life. And then he would take us to his shop. He used to have a shop where he would sell construction materials and paint and that kind of thing. And uh, this was in a town called Onda. That You need to know that this is a very warm place. Sort of the average temperature there is like 34 degrees Celsius all year round. So we were kids and sort of trying to keep us entertained. He would tell us, okay, today you're going to help me with the inventory. Like, okay. So he would take out a box of nails and he would say, it's time for you to count them and tell me how much they are. So you would count them, put them in another box. Okay, Grandpa, so there's 323 of them. Uh, are you sure? <laughs> like, no, well, why don't you count them again? So, yeah. so it's sort of like the fact of getting in touch with doing things. And, and I think that came on an early age because of him. Also my dad, he used to take us to volunteer work that he did in towns near Bogota. And he would sort of have my sister and I be his assistants. So, okay, you need to call out on the patient. So, eh, madam, blah, 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 the doctor's ready to see you. He's an eye doctor, an ophthalmologist. So. Mm. so I think that sort of got me to very quickly being aware of what work means in terms of doing things on a daily basis. And so now, eventually you decided to go to law school. And how was law school? That's, that's uh, an interesting story as well, because at first I didn't want to study, so I had a fight with my mom, because I told her, look, I, at, at the time I was sort of like wanting to read, write, I was very much into literature, and I told her I would want to take a sabbatical, and as an 18-year-old, she was like, no, you're not taking a sabbatical. That, that is funny that you mentioned, because I think that that in, in Latin American culture is not something that is looked upon kindly yeah. but in other cultures it is something that it is encouraged even yeah absolutely and i mean i think something that looking in hindsight i would have wanted is someone there telling me look you need to pitch this properly to your mom if you tell but her how, but how would you pitch that i i'm still i still wouldn't know how for instance <laughs> uh, if i would have told her look uh, i would like to learn french and i would like perhaps to find a job and do some work before sort of deciding what it is that i want to study I've sort of looked to these academies, they cost this much, I would need this kind of support from you, etc. I think she might have been open to the idea, as opposed to me just telling her, no, I don't want to enroll in a university this year. I'm just yeah, but, but still, like, look at what you're saying. You're saying that you have to come up with like, a plan to study something, because yeah. that's the only way that it would be accepted. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fair point. And, and in more Anglo-Saxon cultures, it would be like, yeah, like you need to find yourself and discover the world. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I think that the Latin American culture is very schematic in the sense that you need to go at the right time through the right steps in life to be successful, whatever that means. I don't know if that is changing, but at least when I was growing up, it was yeah. totally that. Yeah, same here. So then uh, my mom convinced my sister to pressure me to fill out the application forms for the universities. And one day I, I was completely rebel and I didn't want to do any of that. So my sister comes up to me and tells me, so what should I put in the form? <laughs> and I'm like, well, put law. <laughs> because of this sort of context of, that I explained earlier. 
And then I went into law school and I loved it. I mean, I think it was the perfect choice for me. I studied at Los Andes University in Bogota, which mm -hmm. has a beautiful campus. At the time, we even had a goat roaming around the place that was called Seneca, which is the name sort of of the mascot, yeah. and it's a goat. <laughs> and it would eat. Like in Oxford, they have like cows and you had goats. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, they took the goat out because there was a visit from people from the sanitation department. So and they were having lunch at this open sort of area of a restaurant, and the goat came and ate the food of the inspectors. <laughs> They're like, no, that's not admissible. <laughs> But, but law school was great. I mean, I studied at a place which was perhaps a bit atypical at the time in Colombia because it was undergoing or it had underwent recently a curriculum reform where the focus was no longer on having students memorize the law and sort of the very traditional formalistic approach of other universities at the time. But it was more what they came to call um, problem-based learning. So those were small classes of about 18 people and students were the drivers of the learning process. So the teachers would come up with problems, sort of real life problems, uh, to inspire research questions and drive research projects for purposes of learning sort of substantive aspects of the law. That was mixed with sort of some traditional lecturing by sort of important uh, justices of the constitutional court or that kind of high-profile uh, teachers that you would get in, in certain law schools. And I found that methodology extremely interesting uh, and very helpful in sort of my formative years. You, you were saying that, uh, because I think that at least the way that I thought of the law when I was studying, it was that the law was versatile, that you could do many things. Like many of my favorite writers went to law school. And then I thought like, oh, if I go to law school, Because I also had an interest in literature and I also thought like, maybe I'll write. I thought like, ah, I go to law school and then maybe I can pursue this, but legitimately. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Was that in your mind or, or you like, were like, no, 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 I forget about that, I'm going to be a lawyer? I think perhaps at first, I mean, you sort of have these adolescent dreams that stick with you for some time, but quickly I sort of drew into finding myself loving being a lawyer. And also sort of a, that was a time when financially my family was not doing great because my mom had lost her job and then she struggled finding a new job for a while. And very quickly I started working. So uh, between sort of the summer breaks after the second semester, I began working. In, uh, in law? Yeah. In I mean, I was firm. very lucky because first I uh, went to the office of an uncle. So he was very kind sort of to allow me to work with him doing everything, sort of like from marking exams of constitutional law of students of his, he was teaching at a business college, uh, to helping draft contracts and translate stuff. So it was a whole range of things, which was fascinating. And after that, I worked at a big law firm in Colombia, to which I went back some years after. And then each summer I found different projects with uh, professors and other yeah, sort of people that I knew in the faculty and, and it was uh, very enriching. So what were the subjects that you were interested in when you were in law school? Uh, that's very interesting because I think I only didn't like tax law, perhaps because I didn't really study it. And otherwise I enjoyed almost everything. So each semester I sort of was very intense on whatever was sort of being covered at the time. 
But one moment that was quite illuminating and in a way got me here was that around my sixth semester, I participated in the Jessup Moot Court competition. So a friend of mine whose brothers and sisters had participated in the Jessup came, look, we need to convince the dean that we need to participate in this competition, that they need to open up the course for us to do it, etc. So we sort of wrote letters and tried to uh, find support for doing that. And it was an amazing experience. Uh, at the time, the case was about um, the application of the Rome Statute. It had not yet entered into force. And the um, sort of adoption had sort of been recently concluded. And they were sort of in the push for getting enough uh, instruments of ratification for it to enter into force. And it was this discussion about extraterritoriality of the jurisdiction of the court. If the national who commits crimes is not a national of a member of the court, but it, they commit the crimes perhaps in a cross-border nature uh, on the territory of a member of a country who is a member of the court and sort of was raised a number of interesting questions. And we went to Washington DC to plead in the international rounds and it was sort of like an eye-opening experience to sort of see the practice of law from an international perspective. Yeah. Of course, within the limits. Uh, because the Jessup, uh, although it's fascinating and oftentimes you have in the final bench judges from the International Court of Justice sitting, uh, to my mind is a competition where most of the people who participate do not necessarily practice international law. They're rather uh, lawyers who practice other fields of the law in different parts of the world, but who did the Jessup at some point in their lives and are very keen or drawn to international law. And, and that's fantastic. But in contrast, another experience that I had later on that we'll move to that in a moment, uh, the Jackson Moot, which used, used to be called the Elsa Moot Court Competition, uh, really brings together experts who practice in the field. So the exposure that students have in that context to practicing lawyers is much greater. And I think it opens much more career opportunities because of that. Yeah, because they are in the field. Yeah, and it's really sort of a recruitment place sort of to see new talent and sort of try to nurture it to eventually sort of given the right conditions uh, join uh, yeah, the practicing lawyers of trade. So your first exposure with international law said you said it's the was the the moot court. Correct. The, and then from there like you were like I want I want to do this. Yes, that was sort of my desire, but then my professional opportunities did not align to that until much later in my career. So, so then you had to go back to Colombia and work in law? Yeah, I mean, I was there in Colombia. So um, my first experience sort of out of law school was an interesting one because I sometimes describe it as doing the career the other way around. Because with some uh, colleagues from the university, we decided to create a law firm. Uh, at the time, I was not yet formally a partner because I had not been admitted to practice law, so I couldn't practice law, but I was sort of uh, supporting them sort of in the idea of becoming entrepreneurs. And the vision that we had is that at the time, we were close friends with a number of artists, uh, people in the sort of arts industry and the um, sort of creative industries. And they were completely oblivious to the law. So oftentimes they felt that big companies would steal their ideas and end up not being sort of uh, justly paid for what they had produced. And we were always sort of appalled to the fact that, well, there is intellectual property. You could use that for purposes of leveraging the value of what you're doing and not sort of being sort of a broke 
artist or designer who is not really able to sort of monetize your talent. And our vision was to gap those two worlds, sort of build a bridge to bring those two worlds together. And that project started uh, around 2004, and I worked in that project for almost four years and a half, because I partnered there with initially four other people, then slowly we were down to two, and then I left. And the reason why I left has to do with uh, the WTO, because in parallel to that, I had the opportunity to be invited as an assistant lecturer at the university where I had studied for, to lecture on public international law. Uh, after that, there was an opportunity to become the coach of a team that participated for the first time in the Elsa Moodcourt competition at the time. And it's funny because there was a event to find support from law firms, etc., to commemorate the 40 years of the foundation of the law school at the university. And there was sort of like a discussion on which competition should we get into. Uh, having done the Jessup associated to, or in a topic close to the International Criminal Court, and given that Colombia was undergoing a peace process with the paramilitaries, I thought, well, it could be interesting to participate in the moot court that the International Criminal Court is opening. Uh, but then, I guess the law firms who were putting in the funds uh, had a better uh, <laughs> market view of the situation or a different market view of the situation. And they endorsed uh, the participation in the Jacksonwood nowadays before the ELSA. So the person who was going to coach the team, uh, he had worked more on these topics, uh, decided to go to do an MBA in Arizona. So he told me, why don't you take on the coaching role? Because you know about Mooting, you did the uh, Jessup, and you may not know that much about WTO law, but you have sort of a basic intermediate knowledge of public international law. And that could be all you need to, to succeed on this. So I was very young at the time. I was uh, 24 years old, thereabouts. And I said, well, why not give it a try? I mean, this is the closest that I've been offered to work close to international law for the time being. So I took on the, the, the invitation. And we assembled the team, uh, which was the star team, I, I, I would say. <laughs> I mean, I've sort of participated in Moots for over a decade now. And it's very rare that you see one team with the people who were in it. Uh, of the team, I think you've already interviewed two of them. Yeah. So it's Juan Paolo and Santiago. And the other two members, one works here, who is Mateo. And the other used to work here and is now in Colombia, who is Jose Torres. And we had the great uh, sort of luck of binding very well together, working very well together. And, and yeah, we did very well in the competition. And that was sort of a door opener and an eye opener because it's like, okay, this is a fascinating field of the law that I hadn't really contemplated. I mean, what appealed to me of international law was more perhaps the romantic view of what happens at The Hague with the International Court of Justice and the big sort of um, human rights or territorial disputes, etc. So that was sort of more appealing at the time to me. But having participated in the moot court, it was like, wow, that's fascinating. And it was also funny in a way because as I was very young, the students were not much younger than I, like two years or so. 
So when I was here in Geneva, people were a bit surprised like that we were doing as well as we were doing. It's like, so what's your background? It's like, well, no, I'm just a lawyer back <laughs> in Colombia who does intellectual property. And, and yeah, ah, okay. And others were like, so you're the shy student that never speaks? <laughs> well, no, I'm actually the coach. I mean, I mean you, you're telling me this, like, yeah, like, I think you're almost the same age. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, basically, I graduated two years before them. So, so it's a very close age gap. But uh, what you were saying, uh, it kind of reminds me because I, like I, I'm also in this field and I feel like, uh, I don't know if that's a view that we have the ones that are in this field or it's like a wide view, that this is like the ugly duck of international law. That's interesting because I guess perhaps given the fact that I, I would say when we studied, I think that sort of a lot of law schools now incorporate a course on WTO law or international economic law specifically. But the fact that it's not really studied gets people to think that it's not important in yeah. a way. Because when you see the classical sort of uh, curriculum of public international law, You go to sources, you go to responsibility, and then you choose a number of topics, which of course include the protection of human rights, the use of force, um, and other sort of aspects that do not include uh, trade. Yeah. And in that sense, perhaps that's why it may be perceived as the ugly duck, I guess. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's like me, like, uh, but yeah, like I, I have that view. <laughs> and. Uh, I've never, I've never coached, but I imagine it was not uh, easy. It, even though you had a really talented team that probably, like if they had like a Panini album of mood courts, like <laughs> it would be the, the golden team. But uh, how was it like actually coaching? I mean, for me, it was a beautiful experience because both as a student, I thought that the process of a moot court is unparalleled in terms of your legal education. And I confirmed that when I was a coach because you have the opportunity to spend so much time with a group of people. Of course, the time commitment on both sides depends on the individual. So my contract was for uh, three hours a week and we ended up working mm -hmm. 12 hours a week. And that's sort of not really what drove, drove sort of the financial issue of the compensation. And I fully understand that not every professor who has sort of other uh, commitments as an academic will be able to devote that much time uh, to a team. But in my case, uh, it was just amazing because we really became very close friends in the process. So I, we would often work at the university. Sometimes we had to work over the weekends. I was living with my mom at the time. We would invite them over to my mom's place. I would cook for them. Uh, we would have long sessions exchanging views, discussing. And as I was not an expert on WTO law because I had never really studied it, I was learning along with them. And my role was more sort of trying to bring to the table uh, whatever degree of uh, analytical criteria that I would have already developed more than them uh, for the years of experience that I have had up to that point. And it's more sort of like, hmm, perhaps this argument doesn't really chime with this sort of other things that you're saying here, so let's try to fine tune it this way or this other way. And uh, I've coached three other teams after that one. And the time commitment is always what marks success. And time commitment comes not only in the form of people being willing to put in the time, but being motivated to do it. Because sometimes you have students that are just sitting there. It's like they're not actively engaging the discussions, etc. Uh, so for me, it was really transformative. I, I, I enjoyed it immensely. 
Um, it taught me a lot about teamwork, it taught me a lot about how you can motivate people, how you can be very methodical in understanding what are your shortcomings to learn what you need to learn to improve and surpass them, or even in very specific aspects of how you express yourself, the way you sit down, the way you sort of orchestrate the presentation, etc. And we were extremely lucky because one of the law firms uh, that was supporting the participation of this team um, was negotiating at the time or sort of participating in the negotiations of the free trade agreement with the US. So they had hired a group of professional coaches to help them sort of participate in those negotiations. And they put those professionals to the service of the team. So we had like five or six sessions with them wow. where they were immensely helpful for purposes of sort of fine-tuning these aspects. And I think one of the most uh, funny advices that I got at the time, that we got at the time, uh, was from a former coach of mine in the Jessup. I had two coaches because one resigned after sort of getting into a discussion with the dean and then the one who replaced him. Um, he was working here in Geneva at the time and he still lives here in Geneva. And I reached out to him, so would you be able to see the team just sort of to give us a sense of how they're looking? And after he listens to them, he says, look, in the substance, you guys are great. I have nothing to sort of to say. But you could improve the delivery a little bit. So work on the cosmetics. And at the time, I thought, like, are you serious? I mean, we have sort of like two days to start this thing. And but OK. And, and after reflecting a bit with him and with the team, it's like, yeah, I mean, cosmetics. Like, for men, like the theatrics or? I mean, this sort of perhaps uh, another reflection, but for men, we don't use cosmetics. Yeah. So we're not really used to presenting ourselves in a particular way in which putting a light of color on your cheek or on your forehead or on your light lids will help somehow your features appear more appealing. Yeah. And I think it's a nice metaphor because uh, how you present and deliver an argument, that type of tone you use, uh, the different sort of shifts that you take and how you're presenting can make a difference. No, I mean, I, I totally agree because, uh, I mean, in Mexico, right now you have oral proceedings, but back then there were, everything was written. Mm -hmm. And what I, I was drawn to the law because of the movies and the way that lawyers like would argue like in the court and it's all theatrics. Yeah. So it is the way about you were talking, but it is, it is funny that uh, they pointed that out to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, it was immensely appreciated because whenever anyone tells you where you're lacking and you are open to that feedback, you can work on improving. But what were like the adjustments that you, if you remember? I mean, for instance, what we tried to uh, enhance um, was the way in which others would sit when one was presenting. So normally teams get very nervous and they start flipping over paper and let's say that one of the presenters is saying something that they know is completely wrong. You have the guy who really knows the law. It's like, oh, why is he saying this? Yeah. And that sort of, if you don't self-control... Like poker face. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so a very built-up poker face. And, and I think at that time, for instance, we discussed something that at the end one of them did in the final round, which we thought was in a way classy which is, okay, you know what you're gonna say. So we rehearsed seven versions of Surrey Bottles. So to give it a bit of drama, sort of in the buildup for the, 
final moment of presenting it, just take the floor and say, eh, members of the panel, I would like to take a few seconds to think of my Reflect. answer. <laughs> and he already knew what he was going to say because we had prepared it. But he did that anyway. And that sort of put a silence in the room. Oh, that's brilliant. That's like, wow, what's he going to say? <laughs> <laughs> who was this? Uh, that was Jose, oh, right, who, yeah. who delivered the, the final survey bottle. Because we had to represent, well, they had to represent the respondents. Which is always interesting and challenging because the respondents often has it much more difficult in these mood cases and possibly in real life um, because of the position that, that's being defended. So, so that was a, a very interesting experience. <laughs> I love it. I love that story. <laughs> so then, like it was a success, your participation in the mood court, and then you were like, I'm going to WTO. Well, <laughs> that, that was the wish, but I hadn't done an LLM, I hadn't done any sort of postgraduate studies on the matter. So it was like going back home and thinking, okay, what do I need to do to get there? And it's often the case that you answer questions in the negative. So you don't know what you need to do, but you know what you don't need to do. So what I thought at the time was, well, if I'm here in a law firm that's basically doing trademark registrations, uh, and sort of IP procedures, that's not what's going to take me there. So what I did at the time was share with my, part, uh, my partner in the law firm that um, I wanted out and uh, that I had been offered an opportunity to work at the Ministry of Trade. This was interesting because at first this was going to work on investment matters uh, and this was something that the professor with whom I worked as a, an assistant lecturer sort of was offering. But then the bureaucracy of it made it that about seven months had passed and I hadn't heard anything of the real possibility of uh, gaining that employment. So in this idea of finding other opportunities, I went back to one of the partners with whom I worked in one of the law firms that I worked as a student and told him, look, I would love to come back and I would like to work on sort of matters related to international law to the extent possible whether it's international arbitration or whatever, there's an offer. And they were delighted to have me back. Uh, I didn't work on anything related to international law for almost a year and a half while I was there. And about a month after I accepted that offer at the law firm, um, this professor with whom I worked reached out and says, so the decision is out, uh, your contract will, has a green light. I told him, look, I'm sorry. But I took this job and I'm not going to turn it down because of this other opportunity because it wouldn't be serious on my part to resign sort of three weeks into the job. And he said, well, no, I fully understand that. Well, I'll just take this as another lesson to sort of the bureaucracy of the government in terms of uh, recruiting people and sort of retaining talent because yeah. sometimes those very burdensome recruitment processes make it that people are not able to wait for such long periods of time. And in this law firm, eh, I had one of the most formative years because I worked at one point with 11 partners. The law firm had 13 on everything ranging from contracts to constitutional law to M&A to project finance. I was doing anything that anyone would ask me to do, basically. That was extremely taxing because of the amount of work that it represented, but it was extremely formative because I got a very in-depth view of 
how law firms operated, how the legal profession worked, and uh, learned a lot about many areas of the law. Uh, that is extremely helpful because, I mean, regardless of the substance matter, which of course you need to become an expert in to do it in a responsible manner, uh, the way in which lawyers work teach you a lot about how one should think, one should prepare, one should argue, one should present. Uh, that is knowledgeable, that can be transposed to any area of the yeah. law. So I, I extremely valued that, that, that opportunity. And when I was into my second year at the law firm, uh, at the Ministry of Trade, Industry and Tourism, there's an office called the Bureau of International Legal Affairs. Uh, there was an opening and I heard about it because in parallel I kept on lecturing at the university and sort of uh, training another team. And the um, position sort of appealed to me and I applied and I finally got it. So I shifted from practicing law in the law firm, the practice sector, to going to government. And that's where I met uh, Mauricio, because Mauricio was part of the team in that office uh, with whom I worked for almost a year and a half. So there I finally was professionally getting into WTO law. And my role there was coordinating with a couple of other people, Colombia's participation as a third party in a number of cases. So the Colombian government took the strategic choice to use its participation as a third party in WTO dispute settlement to enhance its capacity. To learn, yeah. And exactly. It was a great learning experience. I think we were participating in eight disputes at the time, ranging on anti-dumping issues, um, GAD issues, TBT issues, and yeah. So this was a conscious decision of the government. Yeah. We have to do this to... Yeah. To build our capacity. Yeah, exactly. And the timing of that decision came right after Colombia, or more or less parallel to when Colombia was acting as a respondent to a case that Panama brought against Colombia. And the sort of realization was uh, we need sort of homegrown talent to be here to be able to guide this process, regardless if we, as a government, hire external consultants, whether law firms uh, in DC, in Geneva, wherever. It's important for there to be sort of a nucleus of talent to sort of participate in these processes. And the moot court became and has remained, I think, one of the um, growing grounds for talent. So the government still keeps an eye on the new generations to see, okay, this person may be interested in offering them uh, possibilities to do internships. Eventually they grow sort of professionally getting a, a contract and sort of remaining there to keep sort of the pool of people who are knowledgeable on these matters available to come and assist the government uh, as needed. But you said you were there only for one, one year? I was one there year and for a, half? a year and a half, more or less, between 2010 and 2011. And I would have loved to stay more, but personal reasons took me to Mexico, where I lived for two years because my wife um, got admitted to a PhD. So as a family, we decided that we were moving to Mexico and I was sort of letting the job behind. Yeah, actually, when I, one of the first times I talked to you, you told me about your time in Mexico. Yeah. So you were living in Mexico, but you were not, uh, you were working, what were you? Doing? When I got there, I was unemployed. I was going there with um, the notion or the title that we discussed with my wife, teasing of, house husband yeah so, <laughs> so i would basically be in charge of cooking cleaning sort of 
supporting her during her PhD. This was in UNAM? The, uh, the PhD was at El Colegio de México. Ah, El Colegio de México. Yeah, in history. And, uh, in Mexico City. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Mexico City. We lived in the southern part, sort of south of Coyoacán and ah, near Really Kingdom. nice, really nice area. Yeah, yeah, it was a, uh, I, I mean, we had a great time those two years there. I've never been to Colombia, but actually in my mind I picture Colombia like a bit like Coyoacán. I, I think there's places like Coyoacán, but I mean, Coyoacán is much older in terms of the colonial buildings that are there. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, there's... there's <laughs> I don't know why, like, <laughs> in my mind, it's like Coyoacán. <laughs> yeah, I think you, you can find a few towns in Colombia that, that resemble it. And if I were to live in Mexico City, I would like to live in Coyoacán. Yeah, Coyoacán is just beautiful. It's a wonderful place. And uh, so then, like, how, how did you end up here? So I ended up here because while I was in Mexico, I had get to know after the mood experience some people here at the WTO, and one of them very kindly uh, put me in contact with um, Ricardo Ramirez Hernandez, who was an appellate body member at the time. And I talked to Ricardo, and he was extremely generous in supporting me, sort of like, you know, okay, if you want to work, I'm happy to offer work within the realms of my possibilities. And uh, I started supporting him in a class that he gave at UNAM that he still sort of gives. Uh, so I was, again, sort of assistant lecturer. And it was an amazing experience because I had never taught at a public university and at a public campus that's open to the public. So people sort of freely walk in and out. At least that was then. Uh, the university that I went to was a private university, so it was a bit different. And uh, I also uh, worked with Ricardo on some academic research projects on, on, on different matters sort of linked to, to the WTO. And um, after that, while I was sort of, we were ending the first year of my wife's sort of classes of the PhD, we started discussing, okay, so what's next for us, the family? As I had it done an LLM, I had a, done a master's in Colombia, uh, but not sort of outside. And we thought, okay, let's apply to see whether that's a possibility now that we're not in the country, sort of benefit from being outside. And I submitted applications to some universities, got admitting to a couple. And in parallel to that, this friend that put me in contact with Ricardo um, told me, look, there are vacancies here in Geneva, why don't you apply? And I felt like a little bit unprepared in a way because you have this notion that if you haven't done an LLM or have worked for years at the government, etc., you're sort of not sufficiently qualified. But Although I'm, I, I've discussed this with a couple of colleagues and I maintain that if you actually want to learn trade law, it's better to do the moot court than an LLM. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I fully agree that, that you learn much more in depth, uh, at least the subject matter of that year's case. Yeah. And if you have... But then like you also learn how to research, you, yeah. you learn things that when you're doing the, the LLM, you're just... Well, it depends on the program. I, I cannot say on the program, but like it's more about theory instead of actually the practice. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think that that. that and you had already sense. like been involved in so many moot courts, like creating your law firm, which that <laughs> comes with its own challenges. Yeah. So I think you were already said it was mainly you who thought who. <laughs> probably, probably that's the case. And and I mean, it's good that you sort of bust these myths because when you're young and you see certain possibilities is very remote, you perhaps don't dare because you think, well, I'm not necessarily qualified yet to do that. And you may never be qualified in your mind because there's still something else that you need to do, a PhD, what have you. 
Uh, so I applied to these positions. Um, and for the first one, I got turned down. So they said no, which was okay. <laughs> uh, I was very honored because I got in the shortlist. So I came to an interview to Geneva and that was sort of fascinating. Uh, then at the time I was, I was coaching another team from a university in Guatemala because while I was in Mexico, I worked with a university in Guatemala, which was a very interesting experience. And while I was here, uh, this friend told me, look, there's a vacancy for a short term um, in the legal affairs division, uh, would you like to apply? And now that you're going to be in Geneva, well, you could do the interview while you're here. So I did the interview and I was told that they were very happy with the results and that I would be offered a contract. And then the weirdest thing related to HR at the time happened, which is that they had asked me when was the soonest that I could be in Geneva. As we were finishing sort of uh, our life in Mexico, I told them, look, I cannot be, let's say this was in May, and I told them I cannot be here earlier than mid-July because I need to go back, uh, sort of move countries, etc. And uh, in principle, I said, okay. They sort of took note of, of my availability. And when HR wrote, they said, okay, so we would be interested in making an offer on this, but we want to have a confirmation of what's the earliest that you would be here. So I took that as, okay, they perhaps need me earlier and sort of in the interview they had indicated so. So I said, no, I think I'll be able to make it on the 1st of July. And then like five days later, I hear it from HR, an email telling me, well, as you are not available, we have given the contract to someone else. And I was like, what? <laughs> but then sort of uh, the people involved in the recruitment process very kindly explained that. They need uh, someone like now. Yeah, and that as I was applying for another position, that sort of process was ongoing and that, that still, the opportunity was still open. They didn't want to pressure me in terms of sort of jumping the trip early and, and that perhaps HR had not communicated in the clearest way, uh, which at the time felt a bit odd because it's like, oh, it was so close and now it's gone. Yeah, especially you not being aware of all of this, like you're just hearing it from, you had imagined like oh my god like what happened yeah, yeah exactly and like poof it's gone Did i missed my chance yeah yeah which luckily wasn't the case at all and then i was participating in parallel to this other process and the interview was the weirdest interview i have had because it was a remote interview so i had to go to a conference service center yeah, in Mexico like, City. Yeah, because before you didn't, you couldn't have it in your own laptop. Yeah. You had to go to a special place. Exactly, yeah. so for safety reasons, etc. I'm like, okay. So I go to this place and it was a huge screen and then the video was not properly capturing those in the interview room. So I saw half of the face of one. <laughs> it was sort of like difficult to read the room. And then I had the test uh, and I read the instructions. So it took me like 15 minutes to read them. And then when I'm going to start to type, the spacing bar of the computer that they no, gave me was working. not working well. So we had to hit it really hard. <laughs> and I was like, oh gosh, this is horrible. <laughs> and there were like all these caveats in the sort of sheets, so the exam sheet telling you, you cannot stand up because you'll be disqualified. And I was like, and there was no one in the room sort of to ask them, hey, this is not working. Could you sort of pause the clock, give me another one, and sort of we start over. So I just had to struggle my way through the space bar. And I using poop, the autocorrect. I, I actually know what you're talking about. I've, I've had those keywords. It is. <laughs> it's horrible. Maybe it's because it's in Mexico. They're all, they're all in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. But you managed to... Yeah, I mean, I submitted it. It was what it was. Um, and then sort of the next big question came because the LLMs 
that I was admitted to began in yeah. August. The decision in the end was easy because I had applied for a scholarship that I didn't get and I didn't have the money to fund it. So I was like, I'm not going to get into a huge debt at this time if there's this other possibility of going to work at a place where the salary would be much better than what I was earning in Mexico and I would probably earn in Colombia. And worst comes to worst, if the WTO job doesn't turn out, I go back to working with the government or with a law firm or somewhere else. And you had options. Exactly. I mean, sort of the good thing of having worked in other places and sort of having made a, a good impression of, of the employers is that there were possibilities still open. And um, sort of luckily enough, at the beginning of September, if I'm not wrong, or no, perhaps earlier, mid-August, uh, we were having breakfast at my mom's place and then the phone rings and it's like, no, it's for you. And it's like, no, yes, Miguel, we want to offer you a two-year contract, a short-term if you're still interested, you didn't win the position, but we would still like to have you. And I was like, well, uh, okay, let's let's do this. So that's what you brought have, me to you Geneva. You should have paused for a dramatic effect. <laughs> 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 Let me think about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, this was in which year? This was 2013, which okay. was uh, a very intense year in terms of interviews. And the sort of most peculiar thing is that when I came here, that was the time when dispute settlement was expanding because there was so high demand and there was not that much staff working in legal affairs and in rules. And uh, I got here, my first day was 1st October 2013, and around 15 November there's a new vacancy opening for a permanent position. And at the time I was like, oh, I've done already three of these processes, like, I don't really want to do this anymore. But another way of looking at it is like, I'm really good, like, uh, I can do it again. Well, that's, uh, I, that thought didn't cross my mind. I guess I was in a pessimistic mood at the time. But luckily, I had friends around and I spoke with one of them. And he told me, well, why don't you talk to your supervisor to see what, what, what they think? And we spoke and my supervisor at the time told me, look, um, if... Let me sort of put it the way we see it. If you don't apply, we would think that you came here and perhaps there's something that you didn't like that means that you don't want to stay and you just want to be the two years. And then I would go away like, well, that's not really the impression <laughs> I want to <laughs> cause or to leave. So, so let's, let's just apply and sort of I applied and, and then luckily I, I got a position and I've been here ever since. Ah, so that was, I, I didn't, I actually didn't realize that You came here and then you were here like since that time. Yeah, yeah, it's been 10 years that I've been here working in the same division uh, on the same role, dispute settlement lawyer, sort of moving up the ranks uh, as time has gone by, but basically doing the same work. And uh, so like this, where you were talking about the, the generation, about many Colombians being here. And I talked earlier about uh, like, what is the next generation? I, I think it's in the process of being built up. Uh, I think that for Colombian lawyers in particular who worked in the system, there are sort of three main moments. Uh, one moment is sort of that group of people who worked in the accession of Colombia to the GATS and then participated in the negotiations of the WTO. Some of them stayed then here in Geneva, either working in the secretariat, working in ITC and sort of in other um, capacities in Geneva. Uh, there's, of course, some outliers who came sort of through other means, for instance, people who used to work in the Andean community and then sort of found their way to, to Geneva. 
And then afterwards... It was also like one of my guests, like uh, Alan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's others who came, I guess, at the time that I came, who participated in moot courts and then did programs whose sort of emphasis was projecting professional or career opportunities at the WTO Secretariat. Uh, one of these programs was the Yelpo program. There's also the Mile program at the... Burn University. There was also the Georgetown LLM, and different people went through those academic uh, programs and then applied for jobs here and got them. And uh, and here I'm talking only about lawyers because there's other Colombians in the Secretariat who are statisticians uh, and work sort of in other fields, economists, etc. And I think that the new generation of lawyers are sort of now working a lot with the government. I, I mean, us, including myself, also work in the government, but the government sort of keeps on trying to bring them in to nurture them and sort of form them and have them uh, contribute their talents to the work the government does. And some of them are interested then in applying to working here at the Secretariat. So, so yeah, I, I think that that's sort of the, the way for the new generations who, who are still there. Well, we, we covered a lot in, in the conversation. Actually, we covered more. I wanted to focus more on the second part, but the stories that you told me were amazing. So we <laughs> talked about a lot about you getting here. So it has been great. Now I have a, I don't know if you've, if you've heard, but uh, there's this new section in the podcast. I have. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope that you don't have like, so the questions that I'm going to ask, I hope that you think and give me the first thing that, pops into your mind. Will do. <laughs> so, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? I would say to meditate. Meditate. That's an advice that my wife gave me. She did a um, sort of training in meditation. After her PhD, she sort of went into uh, improving lifestyle and well-being. And it's a great advice. I mean, it sort of grounds you to the current moment. Is it like guided meditation that you're doing or...? Uh, generally what I do is two forms of meditation, either active meditation, which is walking. So here in Geneva, it's something that you can do yeah. very nicely. And so like with the beautiful view that we have. Exactly. So I live near the train station and I generally uh, in the mornings come by well, walking. I always walk in the city and I walk down uh, towards the lake and then go through the lake and near the sort of park here before arriving at WTO. And I just focus on breathing and walking. Actually, I, I, I agree. I just got into meditating like maybe a year ago and I kept hearing people talking about it and I was like, what are they talking about? But then I started doing it and yeah, it does have, uh, it does bring a lot of benefits to, to everything. Yeah, 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 I fully agree. And, and, then, and then once you do it, like you start being more present, like everything, like even when you're drinking water, when you're eating, when, when, yeah. I, when you're watching TV. <laughs> yeah, and it sort of reminds you of the superpower that as humans we have, which is breathing. I mean, yeah. just the fact of getting air into your lungs and then the lungs pouring the oxygen through your organism soothes you down. Oftentimes when you're in a very stressful situation, you forget to breathe and well, I think that you're yeah. very wise, but you told me that the best advice you've gotten was from your wife, who probably is wiser than you. <laughs> yes. Similar to, in my case, my wife is wiser than me. <laughs> That's often the case. <laughs> yeah. The, the next question. What's the best advice that you've ever given? Uh, 
I'm not sure I've given it too much, but I think it's be kind. To me in my life, and this is something that I learned from my mother especially, being kind is the ultimate door opener. If you have a smile on your face and you're kind to people, you can get anywhere, I would think. Yeah, I agree. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I might still want to attempt being a marine biologist, but it might be a bit too late for that. <laughs> no, 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 it's never too so, late. So yeah, I would say that. Alternatively, just to put another mix into the table, uh, a chef. I, would, I love cooking and I would I love to train myself more in, in that. When you were in Mexico, did you learn to make like some Mexican specialties? Yes, and I learned in the most beautiful way, which is as I was the house husband, I used to go for the groceries. And as you may know, in Mexico City, there's this sort of local Market, markets yeah. that are called the Tianguis. Yeah. So I would go to the Tianguis near where we lived and I would start seeing things that I hadn't seen in Colombia. And I would ask the seller, so what is this? How do you cook it? How, what do you prepare with this? And they would be very kind in yeah, yeah. sharing sort of recipes and ideas and that sort of uh, also was part of the learning process in Mexico with the great food that you have. <laughs> that, that's uh, well, my family, but the food is something that I miss the most of Mexico. Yeah. What's something you wish you had known 20 years ago? I, I think that here I'll probably go with the line of some of the responses that others have given <laughs> on this microphone, which is knowing that everything will be okay. I mean, when you're young, you're very anxious of the uncertainties that the future holds. And knowing that it will be fine, I think, eases a lot of the weight. Yeah. Pineapple in pizza? Yes. Yes, definitely. Hawaiiana. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's an affront to Italians. <laughs> I, I respect them deeply and love their cuisine, but you need to be open to experiment. <laughs> yeah, that's how food evolved. Yeah. So, drama or comedy? Comedy. Who is your favorite artist of all time? That's, I think, one of the most hard, difficult questions that you're asking. You have so many. Lately. But I would say that Ruben Blades. I think he's a fantastic yeah. composer and an unparalleled storyteller. And so. he is also like a great actor. Yeah. Very, uh, like, I don't think that he gets the recognition that he should as an actor. You're right. You're right. Um, not so much advice, but if you would recommend one thing you enjoy, what is it? Um, eating. <laughs> Yeah. Good food, especially. Yeah. And by good food, I, I, I don't necessarily mean fancy food, because often these days, sort of foodies are associated with going to very posh restaurants, so Michelin stars, etc., which are That's nice. nice. But, yeah. but I think that you can find the beauty of taste when you really connect with what you're eating. And it can be very basic food, but if it's cooked with love, It's just going to be fantastic. Yeah, actually, one of, uh, one of my heroes, I don't know if you know him, Anthony Bourdain, mm -hmm. he talked about, a lot about, and he brought a new interest to food that is done like in the streets. And he came to Mexico and he talked about the Mexican food that's done in the streets. And that's something that I grew up and I always thought was great, but I didn't think that others would recognize it. And I think that he brought this new recognition that is now... He was one of the first that started and now it's well recognized. But I agree, like food of any kind, just as long as it's good and with good company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How would you like to be remembered? I would like if people remember me to do it with a smile on their faces. <laughs> yeah, 
And I think that you exude that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Miguel, it has been like amazing conversation. I know that you have to go, but it was great. Thank you for stopping by. No, thank you for the invitation. This was the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it? <laughs>